Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, where each episode explores how to integrate timeless wisdom into everyday life. We engage in meaningful conversations with leading thinkers in philosophy, leadership, theology, and everything in between. We leave no stone unturned in search of wisdom. To learn more, visit perennialleader.com. Hello and welcome to In Search of Wisdom. On today's episode, my guest is Julie Lithcott-Hames. Julie is the author of the New York Times bestseller, How to Raise an Adult, Real American, a Memoir, and the new book, which we discuss today, is Your Turn, How to Be an Adult. In the conversation, Julie and I discuss many of life's important questions, from vulnerability and confidence, planning and flexibility, how to avoid perfectionism, choosing your own path in life, and much more. I really enjoyed this conversation and hope you do as well. I encourage you to learn more about Julie's work at julielithcotthames.com. And without further ado, please welcome the wise and gracious Julie Lithcott Hames. Hi, Julie. Welcome to In Search of Wisdom. Thank you for being here. Joshua, what an honor. Thank you. Well, congratulations on the book, Your Turn, How to Be an Adult. How does it feel to have it out in the world right now? It feels a lot like having a baby and having them graduate from high school all at once. That is, (laughs) the writing process is the creation um, and the development. Um, And now it's out in the world, and I have a lot of hopes for it. Uh, And I know that most of it is out of my control. I can try to be on a great podcast like this one. I can try (laughs) to show up in spaces and talk about these topics, but largely the book needs to do its work on its own. Yeah, well, thank you so much. I'm enjoying it and excited to discuss it with you. To begin the conversation, would you mind speaking to the framework of the book? Yeah, so this is a self-help book. Um, and I offer these suggestions and observations and snippets of advice, um, about how to lead your best life as an adult through my own narrative about my own life, memoir snippets, if you will, um, through self-help tips. So very practical lists of things you can do regarding whatever the topic of the chapter may be. And then finally, almost every chapter closes with stories that I'm telling about other people. And that was my way of honoring and acknowledging that, hey, I'm not an authority on adulting. Either we all are or nobody is. So (laughs) let me not try to be the sage on the top of the mountain. Let me try to be humble about my own situation, about the lessons I've learned. Let me try to gather other humans onto these pages so that my readers can see there's no one right way to do any of this. There are infinite ways to live one's adult life. And I've really tried not only to bring other voices onto the page, but to ensure that those voices represent a very, very wide swath of our human community. So I have endeavored to be deeply inclusive of all humans, air quotes. I know it's impossible to include all humans, but 
I have gone to some lengths to try to ensure that the stories in the book come from many, many different places. So all major background, all major racial backgrounds are represented people across the gender spectrum, people of various sexual orientations, people from the world's major religions, as well as atheists, um, people who were raised poor, or working poor, or working class, people who are very wealthy, people who are highly educated, hardly educated, people who have mental health situations that they contend with, or other issues in their body and mind that are challenges. I'm just giving you a flavor for the differences Um the identities people carry in this book, if you will. And that was really an important facet of its structure. Um, I wanted every reader, my hope is that at a certain point, any reader will will delight and say, oh, she had me in mind when she <laughs> wrote this paragraph or this chapter or this book. You did an excellent job with that. You include so many different voices and, and backgrounds in the book and cover an exhaustive list of, of topics from mindfulness to money to character. Was that the plan from the from the very start? Joshua, that question uh, presumes there was a plan from the very start. <laughs> and I'm here to say as a matter of craft and a matter of business, um, there was no plan. Uh, my my publisher invited me to write a sequel to my best-selling book on the harm of helicopter parenting. They said, how about a sequel aimed at young adults struggling with adulting? And I said, sure. And we signed the contract back in 2016. And then I failed to write this book for about three years because I just, again, didn't feel like an authority on the subject of adulting. So I ha I just kept failing to... Um, to write it. They didn't like what I was writing. They rejected my structural ideas. They thought I was missing the, you know, I didn't have a money <laughs> chapter. They were like, you have to talk about money. I said, who am I to talk about money? You know, I'm not the authority on money. They said, you got to figure your way into that because your readers expect your voice on this subject. And so I really struggled. Um, and ultimately, it was a push and pull between me and my editor and her team. Um, <clears throat> I insisted, for example, that there had to be a chapter on relationships. And I got pushback saying, you're making it sound like everyone has to be in relationship. And we've been told we don't have to focus on our relationships until we're in our 30s. And this is a book for people in their 20s. So I said, yeah, you've been told that. And if you have been told that, I reject that advice. Mm. Relationships are as key to life as the way in which you will support yourself and and so on. And so I'm going to talk about relationships and why we have to form them and why we have to get better at being around humans. And some of them will end up in our neighborhood and some of them will end up in our bed and some of them will, will be our colleagues. But we got to know how to be in relationship with humans. So I, there was a lot of argument mm. about the, the chapters. And um, ultimately, I think we did settle on a very comprehensive set of topics. Um, and I'm proud, Joshua, of the fact that you don't open the table of contents and see work, relationships, identity, mm. money. Money is labeled, money matters. But the others are sort of more interwoven. Like there's a chapter called Stop Pleasing Others. They have no idea who you are. And that chapter covers both what you do for work and your identities, um, because both at their root should be your choice, um, and both are quite subjected to the opinions and expectations of others. So those seemingly very different topics, work and identity, 
I put them in one chapter because the point is at their base is you, what you know to be true about yourself, what you want out of this one life. Well, thank you so much for sharing a bit of insight into this this process of, of writing this. I really enjoyed the book, and I, I love some of these chapter titles, like the one you just mentioned. Um, if we could follow this struggle a bit of, as you mentioned, feeling like an authority from an outsider yeah. looking in, someone familiar with, with, your, with your last book, you seem to be the perfect person to to write this book. You seem like such an authority, and it, it does seem like a a great kind of uh, follow up to the last book. What is it about some of these that that feeling of of lingering doubts, maybe if you would call it that, or not feeling like an authority that comes up so often when we're embarking on a new venture? I guess. Yeah, Joshua. Let me first. Um just clarify that this is actually my third book. And my middle book, which I don't want to have come across in life as my middle child, which is why I'm choosing to (laughs) mention it right now, is a memoir on being black and biracial growing up in mostly white spaces and dealing with racism and microaggressions. So, um, so this is actually book three, a sequel to book one. Um, Great. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it gets to the question of what does it mean to be an authority? I think what I was rejecting or fearing was um, presuming to have studied adulting for my entire career. Often one writes a book after they've amassed the body of information, knowledge, experiential research, right? And then they write that book. And I found myself thinking, I haven't done that. I have not. Where is the body of knowledge on adulting? Is there a body of knowledge on adulting? Mm-hmm. I, I think tradi- if I was applying a very traditional definition to the concept of authority, for example, I've been a lawyer. One cannot presume to practice law without having gone to law school, taken a bar exam, passed a bar exam, you know, continually educating oneself. And so I think in that context, I thought, well, wait a minute, I, I do not have the credentials. Maybe that's what I'm trying to say. Mm. I don't have the credentials to write this. Um, and then I had to – and I'd signed a contract saying I would write it. So somebody thought that I was well-equipped. So I had to to figure out how to convince myself that I could. It was like mm. my publisher was believing in me, which felt great, and expecting me, which felt like pressure, and paying me. Um, which was good. Um, and so I was being pulled into this and sort of having to sort of push myself from behind. Um, <laughs> and I finally got there, as I explain in the introduction, which is just a little two-page thing at the outset, where I basically say, look, in order to write this, I realized I got to drop any pretense of authority about this all-important and universal subject and instead lead with vulnerability. So here goes. I am not wiser than you. I have been broken, sad, scared, bewildered, worried, and ashamed. I try to help humans make their way in life. I'm rooting for all of us to be okay. This book comes from that place. And that, I think, encapsulates what I now feel to be not authority, but 
it was my way into the subject, my way of being in the subject, um, and my way of demonstrating, I think, to readers, you don't have to be the expert to be of use. Mm, that is so good. I guess I would love to explore vulnerability a little bit more. I uh, really have such appreciation and respect for how open you are in the book. But I guess before we get too far, let's talk a little bit about adulting. You begin the book with it's part wanting, part having to, part learning how. Could you speak a bit about uh, adulting, just a o- overview, I guess? Yeah. I think the simplest overview is... Um, in childhood, you are the responsibility of others, more or less. If you have a tough childhood, if your parents aren't able, can't, won't, don't provide the basics, you might not be uh, being cared for well by others. But if we're reasonably fortunate, we are in the care of others in our childhood. We are their responsibility. It is on them to look after us. Adulting is the opposite. We are more or less responsible for ourselves, which doesn't mean we have to go it alone, but does mean that when we get up, we know it's on me to take care of my business, my body, my bills, my belongings, etc. And so there are skills that one needs to acquire in order to be able to take care of business for yourself. But it's mostly, I think, the skills can be learned by watching YouTube videos, by (laughs) watching your parents or your friends, you know, get someone to teach you how It's the mindset of wanting to be in charge of oneself and the practical reality of having to be in charge, having to be responsible, that I think are missing. Uh, There there is um, a clear sense that if you're privileged, for example, if you're financially privileged, you may not ever have to adult. Why? Because your family, your extended family, the staff your family hires, (laughs) pays, um, takes care of you. They procure your shelter. They procure your food. They make your food. They design things for you. They enable experiences for you. And all you have to do is show up and take a photo for Instagram. And so this is an intriguing concept, I think, an example of how those who are seemingly privileged, financially they are, may really be undermined by the privilege because they're being deprived of the delicious terror of having to be responsible for themselves. And I say terror because it is a little (laughs) scary when you're just out there. Wait a minute. I've got to figure this out. I've got to ask the question. I've got to solve this problem. Yes. But when you do it, you are filled with this delicious sense of accomplishment. I did that. I took care of it. My family may be rich and have an amazing place and in an amazing city. And I'm just in this kind of shabby apartment, but it's mine. I chose it. I've signed the lease. I've decorated it with whatever I could find at a thrift store or what have you. And and I decide what's in the fr- in the refrigerator. And I decide. There's tremendous satisfaction that comes from that. And that's the that's you know I I try to point that out because um, I think many people presume oh if you're if you're wealthy you're fine. I know there are a lot of young adults who are struggling with adulting precisely because they've been overmanaged and are still overhelped. I didn't write this book only for them, but I am acknowledging in this book that some of my readers have been raised that way. They have been deprived of having to adult, so they can't. Hmm. I love that. Delicious terror and delicious accomplishment. (laughs) Yeah, Um, I'm hoping to explore some of these uh, balancing 
acts of, of life, uh, paradox and polarities that, that come up throughout the book. And one you mentioned was around vulnerability. And I was really I'm just fascinated by the vulnerability that you put on the page in this book. And it, it makes me think of this paradox of, of wisdom. True wisdom is in not knowing, you know, Socrates said it thousands of years ago. It seems to me one could say something around true confidence is the ability to be vulnerable. And I, I, I'm curious your thoughts on that. I, I feel in, in look at that is with just uh, such respect, the, the confidence to, to put it out there. How do you see that and how can we cultivate more vulnerability in our lives? Well, first of all, thank you for bringing Socrates into the conversation. <laughs> um, I don't dwell enough in the philosophy space, so I appreciate that. And I've just jotted it down. True wisdom is not knowing. True confidence is the ability to be vulnerable. Thank you for that. I'm going to take those with me <laughs> and mull them further and and uh, be more intentional maybe about incorporating um, those truths more intentionally in my, in my work, because they're definitely there. Um, mm. Let me back up and say I'm a memoirist, right? I've shared with you my middle book is solidly memoir. And I believe, Joshua, that you write memoir to be of service. You can mm. write all you want about your life in your journal. You can talk about it with your friends and loved ones. But to put it between the pages of a book and ask people to buy it or borrow it and read it, I think you do that. You are justified in doing that if your work can be of service to others. And so, that I accept. I just take that. That is that is my ars poetica. That is my reason. That is my, you know, why I write memoir. Mm. Um, so, if I'm going to be of service, what do I need to do? Well, I have learned over the course of these 53 years of spending a lot of time with humans. I'm a people person. I've always gravitated to people. People have gravitated to me. I love being in conversation with humans. I love listening to people's stories. I love, I, I feel that when I am in conversation with people, uh, let me put it this way. Often they say, how did you know that? Or, because mm. I'll ask a question, they say, how did you know? And to me, it's as if they've told me, but they haven't actually said it in words. I think what's happening is I'm reading between the lines, I'm reading body language, I'm reading energy, I'm, I'm hearing the words, I'm looking at the expression on their face. And so, I often find myself in vulnerable conversations with people being vulnerable with me, mm. and I can be vulnerable back with them. And I've learned how deeply connected we can feel, and therefore less alone, more seen, achieve mm. a great sense of belonging when we can dare to open up. And so, I'm quite aware that many of us carry masks on our faces. We have fortresses built around us so that no one can actually know what we feel or actually know what we want. We do a lot of performing at work, in our, in our relationships. And I think in my work, bigger picture, I'm trying to say, let's take the facade away. Let's take the armor off. Let's take the mask down. Let's try to actually be our self, tell the truth of our experience as much as we can bear to, as best as we remember it. Let's see what can happen when we do, because my life experience has told me that great, deep communication, connection, 
belonging is possible. So that's what I'm trying to do on the page with and for my readers. I'm trying to entice them to be vulnerable within themselves about themselves. So part of this is me demonstrating, look, let me tell you some of my shit, you know, let me tell you what I learned from it. And maybe then you'll be a little bit more open to what's going on inside of you. It's beautiful. If you reflect back, do you remember any, any moments of, of that particular insight around just a light bulb around vulnerability, maybe, maybe turning on? I don't. I don't have a single moment, certainly not going way back, mm. um, because it was simply my way of being. So it wasn't uh, in contrast. It wasn't a um, a new thing. I mean, I remember years when I felt I couldn't be vulnerable. Mm. So I remember the things that closed me down. Um, and, you know, experiences where my feelings were not... Um, recognized or validated. I come, I say in the book, much to my mother's horror, I come from people who don't believe in feelings. She was like, how could you write this? I was like, Mom, (laughs) you're from England, stiff upper lip. You told me just like, it's only cold if you think it's cold. In bitter Wisconsin, you were like, mind over matter. You know, my feelings were just not something my parents contended with. I wasn't punished for having feelings, but I wasn't, you know, I was taught, nah, you know, when you have feelings, they will not be validated. Uh, that was my parents' way of coping, given the lives they had led. You know, it worked for them. It didn't work for me. Um, so I remember the closing down around, oh, I shouldn't share, or oh, I need to, um, you know, try to get my needs met in other ways, um, or soothe myself in other ways. Um, mm-hmm. But I think I have largely worked through that time of being closed off or having to protect myself emotionally with a fortress. So I maybe what I'm saying is I've returned to that more innocent, open state that I mm. was in that I probably we are all in as children before the world imposed itself on me and taught me its <laughs> rules. And <clears throat> I'm very interested in, in helping everybody through that process, kind of returning to that wise self um, that I kind of believe we were all born as. Hmm. I love that. We could probably stay there for for quite a while. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but to keep moving on some of these other balancing acts, I, I think of one around planning and flexibility. You write about a student that shares an incredibly detailed roadmap for the next 10 years of life or so. How do we make plans but also be open to the uncertainty of life? Well, I think it's respecting the latter and then doing the former. Respecting Mm. that the universe is chaotic, that life constantly presents uncertainty, that we are not in charge of much of it. We can only be in charge of ourselves if we work hard at being in charge of ourselves, at knowing through a mindfulness practice what's going on for us, and therefore choosing what behavior to exhibit, what choice to make, how to respond instead of reflexively, instinctively react. Um, So I think it's, it's accepting 
with and frankly it brings relief to me when i say you know what the universe is chaotic most of it is out of my control okay great i'm not responsible what am i responsible for me okay what do i want to do well i want to make some plans i want to go to grad school i want to get into this line of work i want to improve my fitness i want to become fluent in another language i want to be a more voracious reader we can set goals for ourselves we should um but just attach to it that uh, that sort of omnipresent recognition that yeah i'm going to i'm going to work at this and it might not entirely go my way and that's normal and new things can come when i get diverted from my path being diverted from our plans and goals doesn't mean we have failed necessarily maybe we did maybe it was a complete failure what can we learn from it how can we retool get back up try again but maybe it's a oh ha way hey this turns out to be diverting me and I'm going in a new direction that I had never contemplated, but it looks like it just might be even better. So there's a mental flexibility as opposed to a rigidity. Mm. There's a sense that there isn't just one path, one way that we must plan for and adhere to in order to be okay. It's um, it's a freedom. It's a free, it's a willingness to go. It's like being, you know, it's like being a, a leaf in the creek that's flowing to the ocean. You know, I'm going to throw myself in this creek and see where I go. And some of it's up to me, but a lot of it's up to the eddies and the wind and these other obstacles in the way. And I don't mean to say we have that little, maybe that's not the right metaphor, but there is a, you know, I'm going to do it, but I'm, it's also going to take me where it's going to take me. Mm. That's really helpful. Hearing you explain that it, it, it brings up a, a common quote in the in the military i retired from the from the air force and eisenhower said plans are worthless but planning is everything is that does that resonate is that how you um would think about it if you were side by side with one of your students yeah i think that's beautiful um I've heard um, there's no such thing as perfection. No, mm. practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. Mm. And I love how people try to spin, you know, adages out of new adages out of old ones. Um, yeah, I see. Was that Eisenhower you said said that? Yes. Yeah. Plans are worthless, but planning is everything. Um, yeah. Yeah. Plans are concrete. They're drawn up. They are done. Planning is a process. Mm. Um invokes a sense of uh, a timeline, a continuation. Um, so yeah, I, I, I love that. I agree with it. Another thread that comes through the, the book is learning and, and growing. And you talk about a couple zones of, of stretch zones and, and panic zones. I was wondering if you could speak to those two a bit. Sure. Well, let me start with comfort zone, which is the first one, mm. which is like, being on your couch at home where you feel safe and you have your Netflix and you have your snacks and everything's fine. <laughs> and it's safe there, but you don't learn much there. Your stretch zone is where you're out of your comfort zone. Um, you're going to learn a thing or two because it's not comfortable and familiar entirely, but it's not your panic zone, which is beyond the stretch. Panic is when 
our basic needs are in jeopardy. We might be, our life might be in danger. We may have absolutely no idea how to get ourselves out of a very difficult situation. Uh, we don't, we're not aiming for anyone to be in the panic zone. And as someone who has served in our military, and thank you, Joshua, for your service to our nation. Oh, um, thank you. Yeah. You know, you have had to put yourself in harm's way. Um, there are very few professions that ask and require and demand that. There are very few people who will choose that. Um, so I, I'm, you know, I'm in awe of of people like you, of our veterans, of our active servicemen and women who are putting themselves more in that panic zone. Um, probably not panicking, but in that danger zone. Uh, where mm. panic is possible because things that are fundamental are threatened. The stretch zone is, for us civilians, um, that place of growth. There's risk, so therefore growth is available. Um, learning is available, but it's not um, so risky or so scary that you are then um, really in jeopardy or paralyzed by fear. How would you differentiate between the two and in, in your experience working with with young people as the dean of, of freshmen how do you determine am i in the in the panic zone or or is this a stretch opportunity any any thoughts there for someone that might be facing that yeah um Part of it is, what is your body feeling? You know, our bodies tell us, I'm afraid, I'm mm -hmm. panicking. Now, body, our bodies can tell us that because we have anxiety about something that is uh, anxious to our mind, worrisome to our mind, but not actually going to be problematic. Um, so these are things that are that are worth, if we do have anxiety, um, a lot of anxiety, a lot of panic about things, it's good to go get some therapy around that and begin to understand the root of that and what you can do to teach yourself that this isn't as bad as I fear it's going to be. And often a therapist will ask you to teach yourself by taking small incremental steps mm -hmm. uh, toward that thing to prove to yourself that, hey, this is going to be just fine. Um, outside of the realm of somebody feeling that that panic and that anxiety, if somebody's just making a choice and they're trying to assess, is this a stretch for me or is this really too far? Is this putting me in danger or in a place of panic? Um, I would ask myself, okay, what what do I what do I know about this circumstance? And what capacities do I know I have that might serve me in this circumstance? Um, mm. Maybe, you know, maybe it requires a lot of driving. It's a job, you know, it's a job, take this job, it requires a lot of driving, you have a lot of freedom, times your own, you know, what do I know about myself as a driver? Am I a good driver? Am I a safe driver? Do I like driving? Do I hate driving, but I'm fine with it? Um, assessing your own capacity vis-a-vis -vis the task required is a way to know, is this going to be a stretch for me? Or is this really going to be too much? Mm. And it sounds like it was a simple kindness. Just do your best. All we ask is that you do your best. But if you examine the sentence um, linguistically, it is only always do your best. Just do your best. Only always do your best. And when I talk to young people, say high school students, I, I say, how many of you have heard this? And they all raise their hands. And I say, look, we're, we're well-meaning, we, your parents who say this, but Who's ever doing their best? None of us, I promise you. <laughs> None of your teachers, yeah. your parents. We're never always only doing our best. 
Um, what we mean is try hard every time. Try. Okay, try leans into effort. The effort you make is what matters. Whereas do your best seems to imply an outcome that is best. Okay. I mean, I think what parents actually mean is make your best effort, which then is yeah. more analogous to try hard, but it comes across as this perfectionistic, do your best, do your best, do your best, coupled with the notion of perfect, great job, you know, perfect. You, you, you made an amazing painting. You did the dishwasher correctly. Perfect. We say to our kids, perfect, 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 just do your best all the time. And I believe it has led to this climate of fear, particularly in young adults, where the landscape is wide open and it's no longer about doing chores at home or getting your homework done or getting the right grades and scores. It's about life. And they're Mm -hmm. searching for, wait a minute, how do I do it so that I'm perfect? What is the perfect effort here? What is the perfect outcome here? And rarely is there an answer to that question that isn't, no, there isn't a perfect answer here. There isn't a perfect outcome. So um, I think the the balance is... um, set goals, you know, try to achieve things, but focus on the fact that it's your effort that you have control over. Greater effort should yield better outcomes over time. It's the effort that you have control over. And forget perfection. Forget trying to be perfect. That's sort of a mirage. It's like the oasis you think is ahead of you in the desert that's really not there or is forever out of reach. Whereas effort, you know, you're putting one foot in front of the other, you're making a decision, you're deciding to solve the problem this way, and see what happens. That's, um, that's within your control, and therefore, it feels satisfying, and uh, as opposed to um, frightening. I love that. So important. How about finding your path and the outside pressure of, of family, society, yeah. Yeah. So being a dean at an elite campus, I encountered more students than I can remember who were contending with family expectations. And many of us, wherever we go to college or whether we go to college, whether we're in the military or in the workplace or or at a higher ed institution in our young adulthood, we are contending with other people's needs for us, expectations of us. And often the voices of family, extended family, peers, society, our whole ethnic community, our whole religious community, those folks and their opinions are the voices dominating the, uh, it's like we're tuned to their radio channel, you know, we're (laughs) tuned to their station. and, And I, in this book, am encouraging readers to tune to your own voice. Yes, all those other channels are there. See if you can tune your own voice in. Uh, because ultimately, this is your one life, and you're not a robot here to execute someone else's instructions. And you're not a dog on a leash being marched down the path of life by someone else. And you're not a puppet on a string, set of strings being manipulated by somebody else. You're not. You are this unique individual. You got to figure yourself out. What are your strengths? What do you love? What are your identities? Where do you feel a sense of belonging. Go in that direction, regardless of what these other voices might be telling you. And here, Joshua, I land on the poet Mary Oliver. In one of her poems, she says, tell me, 
What is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? And I really do believe it's it's ours and it's a, it's one life and it's or maybe there's more, but you can't know now what the next life will be if you if that's your belief system. It's yours. It's wild, meaning untamed, <laughs> meaning mm-hmm. who knows, meaning anything is possible, unbridled. And uh, it is precious. It is a gift to be alive. And um, so I, I'm I'm rooting in this book. I mean, the, this paradox, find your path and, and other people's expectations comes in. I really lean into it hard in chapter five and six, what's keeping you stuck, uh, what's preventing you from making those choices. It's sort of the hinge of the book. Um, it is the core of the book that this is yours. Let's examine how to get unstuck, what's sticking you, what's in your way, who's in your way, how can you level up in various ways around character, around body and mind, around work, around relationships, so that you can live the life that you imagine for yourself. When you think about that with your path of of part of that in, in law and going to law school, if you would have asked yourself some of those questions, what what difference do you think it would have made, maybe? You know, so let me say one more thing before I answer that, which is what I forgot to say earlier. It gets easier to tune your own voice in and listen to it and drown out the noise of others the older you get. Hmm. Right? If you are living with your parents, if they're paying for your shelter and food, if they drive you everywhere you know, they're in charge. You are still, you're not yet responsible for yourself. And they have a lot of opinions and you're probably going to try to uh, please them or adhere to their expectations because they're, they're in charge. They are literally making life happen for you. The older you get, the more financially independent you get, uh, the more you're making your own decisions around the basics, the more agency you develop that allows you to say, you know what? I love y'all. I know this is what you think you want for me. I appreciate that. And yet this is what I know to be true about myself or what I want to try. And you may not understand it, but I hope you can still love me regardless. And that is, you know, that that clarity and that insistence is partly a function of age and stage. It comes, but you it doesn't just come naturally. It is available to you the older you get. In terms of my path in law, I mean, I went to law school for the right reasons, Joshua. I went... Mm-hmm. Because I had fallen in love with law as an undergrad. I was taking political science classes. I was learning about how law and lawyers um, were making life more fair. And I wanted to be about that. I wanted to be one of those lawyers who would open up a whole new set of possibilities for people who had been marginalized, oppressed, um, not cared about. That's why I went. But... Mm. While I was there, as a, I now know at age 53, when I was in my mid-20s and I was in law school, though I had gone to help humans, I felt so insecure as a young woman of color at an elite law school where all my life I'd been told if I got an opportunity, I only got it because I was black and that I wasn't really capable. I was fighting against those um, stereotypes. It's, there's a field of psychology called stereotype threat. I was very much susceptible to it. And so I desperately needed to prove to mainstream, air quotes, mainstream white society that I was capable of getting the big fancy job. The public interest work that I had gone to law school to pursue didn't pay very well. It was Mm. not what people 
applauded you for doing like, oh, you know, you're going to go be a lawyer and earn only this much. What do you, you have a law degree? Why don't you go earn this much? I was so worried about what other people thought of me and I needed their approval that I went in the direction of corporate law and I was now protecting intellectual property, copyright, patent, trademark, instead of protecting people, which was my why behind going Mm. to law school. So I think what I would do if I could go back to that little self, that half half a life ago self, I would say, you know what, (laughs) to hell with what other people seem to think matters in terms of the job you should pursue. Hey, kid, it's up to you. Remember why you came. Remember why you sacrificed this time and this money and put in all this effort to get this degree. Remember who you're here to serve. Mm. You know, don't let those outward forces pull you away from yourself. I'd love to go back in time and tell her that. Not to say I haven't loved what I did. I'm delighted to have had the twists and turns in the path that I've had. I'm now in my third career. But when I see injustices happening all around me as they do, there is a piece of me that wishes that I had stayed in law. I left in 98. It is now 2021. My <laughs> law degree is pretty much a piece of paper on the wall. There are a few things I remember. I am not able to go serve anybody in the capacity of lawyer anytime soon, which is not to say I couldn't brush up on all of that and do it again. But um, I do have some sad, excuse me, some sadness and some regret around that. Um And I'd love to go back and reassure that younger self, basically, keep going, stay the course, you know why you're here. Don't let them dissuade you. Mm, That is great. Our our time has flown by, and I want to respect your time, and maybe we can wrap up around the topic of, of character. Something highlighted several times in the Kindle edition of the book is, character determines our perception. I was wondering to know if you could speak to how that maybe plays out in everyday life. Character determines our perception. Wow, I don't even remember writing that. I love the fact that it's (laughs) highlighted in the Kindle version. And now I'm like, wow, the Kindle version has highlights. I need to go look at that. I think what I probably was trying to get at is a sort of a two-way thing. Um, When we work on our character and take an interest in... Um, being kind and gracious toward others and patient about circumstances and giving others the benefit of the doubt. Um, That good character can determine our perception about others, how we perceive situations involving others um, is influenced by the character we bring. Um, But character also determines how others will perceive us. That is, when we show up in the world with a good and kind character, and we're easy to be around, other humans will feel like, ah, okay, we will be perceived as approachable, helpful, uh, kind, um, useful. And so, um, character is sort of like this invisible, yet highly um, evident thing. You know, it's not a label we wear on our foreheads. It's not a brand that's attached to our shirt. It's a way of being that conveys something. Mm. It conveys, hey, you're safe with me. Hey, you know, I am here. I am fine. Right? I'm, I am good. Um, you can work with me. Or it's a way of being that says, nope, you know, I'm difficult. I'm angry. I'm impossible. I'm mean. Um, I'm closed to you. Um and um, 
So it's sort of like this energy field in some ways around us. And it's either one that allows others in or keeps others out. I love that. Invisible, but highly evident. Um, One of the things when you outline these 16 principles of of good character, and we're just scratching the the surface, obviously, on on the book in general, but number 15 is forgiveness. I wonder in many of the adulting books that may be out there, and I'm sure you've read quite a few in, in researching for this book, that seems to be something that could be could be missed and is maybe not always uh, included. How does forgiveness connect to character and, and maybe adulting as a whole? Yeah, thanks for homing in on that. I think many of us are raised to think, either in our families or in our work situation, that to forgive is to be weak, that mm-hmm. to be strong is to hold that grudge and mm-hmm. let people know how they've harmed you and hurt you. And so we think that holding the grudge or, or keeping the memory of the thing alive is protecting us and, and demonstrating strength. But psychologists have taught us that forgiveness, um, that, that the, the anger and the grudge harms the bearer of it that that anger and grudge is in our bodies and in our minds. Mm. And um, so what we want, of course, is to be healthy and whole and free and calm and feel ease. And so forgiving the person for the thing, forgiving even ourselves when that is necessary, releases it. It, it's sort of like, you know, some people do a ritual of something terrible happened, and I'm going to write it down. And I'm going to burn it in a fire and let you know, that smoke travel up um, into the atmosphere, I'm going to let it go. Forgiveness is a letting go. It doesn't mean the thing wasn't terrible. It doesn't mean the thing didn't matter. It just means I'm no longer going to carry the, the tough stuff about it in my body. Because I'm choose, I want my body to not have to carry that weight and that pain. Mm-hmm. I listened to the uh, podcast you did with NPR, which talked about your book Real American, and you speak a bit about you know, the racism that you faced growing up, and how do you see forgiveness in this? releasing and, and letting go, which is kind of coming up for me uh, with, with forgiveness. Do you see a, a connection? How would you describe that? Oh, Joshua, I think this is my work right now. Mm. I have gotten really good, finally, at naming the racist experiences that have been directed my way, the microaggressions, the smaller things that we don't think of as outright blunt force racism, but that in the aggregate can really hurt over time. I -hmm. suppressed my awareness of those for decades. I finally came to terms with that through my writing in my 40s. I wrote a book. I've I've sort of gotten it. Yeah, I've gotten to a place of truth telling around this, which I think is important. And I have a lot of anger around those incidents, the people who were the perpetrators, uh, I just feel real anger. And I have, it, it is such that I choose now 
as a Black woman in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, for example, I have withdrawn from places where I feel, you know what, these are going to be conversations about race that maybe it's well-meaning, but I can't even deal with the fact that people are just discovering racism. Mm. It's so offensive that some people just discovered this and newly believe it uh, when we've been saying for so long, please help, please stop. And so I'm aware that I have retreated that, that, that I, that this is an area of work for me. I, I, I'm deciding to put the mask on or to retreat behind the facade if I can't have the, I can't be in these conversations because they're too painful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I think where I want to be is, um, no, I, I bring my self loving self with me wherever I go, no matter what anybody says, I'm fine. And I can choose to respond or not, and how to respond if I choose to. And um, I don't have to let these opinions and perspectives uh, be a new wound uh, created in me. So I think what I'm trying to say is, um, I want to be able to forgive people for where they are, um, vis-a-vis something like racism, while still expecting them, because I want to forgive it, because I don't want to hold to have that anger or frustration lodged within me. So I want to forgive them for where they are, if it's not where I would hope they would be. But while maintaining an expectation that all of us are doing the work Mm. to be less awful to each other on the basis of our identities. Um, I am insistent that we do the work, but I think I'm my, what I need to do. And thank you so much for asking this because you're really opening me to something I think I've been struggling with for a year now. Mm. You know, I think I need to be able to do both. Um, Forgive, um, you know, for forgive. What is it? There's a religious thing. I'm not religious. Right. But it's um, hate the sin, but love the sinner. Mm. Right. So I think I want to love people through this um, while still insisting that people do their work. Mm. Well, thank you so much for sharing. This has been a beautiful conversation. I'm really grateful to connect with you. As you we... too, Joshua. You oh, are... Thank you. I'm on a lot of podcasts, man. And this is just a joy and a pleasure. Oh, well, thank you so much for that. Uh, that means a lot, Julie. As yeah. we start to wrap up our conversation, just a A quick closing question. Is there anything you've changed your mind about in the last few years when you think about how to raise an adult or or your turn that you might edit or add to to one of your books? Absolutely. I actually was called out on Twitter um, by a young person who came across a list I wrote in How to Raise an Adult. So my parent, anti-helicopter parenting book, that came out six years ago. Um, I have a list of things an 18-year-old should be able to do. And I was really searching for markers of capacity and capability that going back through time, or at least over the last century, it was reasonable to expect an 18-year-old would do. There was a time in the not-too-distant past when it was 18, you're up or out. Your parents kicked you out. You were in the military. You were in community college. You were in college. You were in the workplace. Those were your choices. You know, that was the norm. And I think coming out of that mindset, I had this list of, okay, an 18-year-old, 18 used to mean something, I think I was trying to say in this book. <laughs> and and why does it no longer? And let's try to hold to that. And anyway, so the list begins, I'm trying to pull it up quickly, I'm not sure I can, but it's, the list begins something like an 18-year-old needs to know how to talk to strangers. And I 
you know, you know from reading your turn that I have a whole chapter. Start talking to strangers. Humans are key to your survival. Mm. And I do believe that human interaction, I don't just believe it. Research says that our human relationships are everything. And I was trying to make the point that in childhood today, we're often saying don't talk to strangers, which undermines our kids' abilities to be out in the world. When they leave our homes, their lives are full of strangers. So this person called me out on Twitter saying, have you ever met an autistic person? Mm-hmm. And I res- replied, I didn't even know what they were referring to. So I just got this tweeted at me. Have you ever met an autistic person? And I said, yes, absolutely. In fact, I I have interviewed a- an autistic person in my next book. And, 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 and this person replied with a screenshot of the first book that said, an 18-year-old must be able to talk to strangers. And, and, Mm-hmm. Um, and what I regret is, I think the advice holds, must, it should say, you know, if if cognitively able, if, you know, right, it, or there should be a caveat that says, I know this is hard for people with social yeah. anxiety, people who may be on the autism spectrum. There weren't caveats about different ways of learning, different challenges people might have uh, with their mental health or with their um way of being. And and I think that is something I've really learned a tremendous amount about. I didn't know the term neurodivergent, neurodiverse, neurotypical when I wrote How to Raise an Adult, but those terms are very much alive and um, utilized. And people in those communities, I think, are very much respected in your turn in the newest book. Well, thank you so much for your work in the world, Julie. I Highly encourage everyone to get the book, Your Turn, How to Be an Adult. This has been a great conversation. Where do you point people interested in learning more about you? Yeah, thanks for that, Joshua. Um, my website, julielifcotthames.com, is kind of home base. Check it out. You can find out all about my books there and just kind of who I am, what I'm up to, my philosophy for how I try to show up in life. I'm very active on social media where I'm J. Lithcott Hames, first initial, last name, J. Lithcott Hames everywhere, except not yet TikTok, but maybe we'll, we shall see. <laughs> um, I do like to interact with folks, so please give me a follow if you're interested in this stuff. Uh, I would love to be in conversation and in community with you. I love it. And we'll link all of that in the show notes. Julie Lithcott Hames, thank you for your time today. It has been a pleasure. Joshua, thank you. And I want to thank your listeners, too, for spending all this time with us. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. Until next time, be wise and be well.